In the beginning, there was darkness. A void waiting to be filled with the echoes of destiny. From the depths of time, legends emerged. Heroes forged in the fires of adversity, their stories etched in the fabric of eternity. Through the sands of ancient deserts, across the vast expanse of galaxies, and amidst the tumultuous waves of the ocean, their journeys began. But amidst the chaos, there arose a whisper, a call to action, a beacon of hope. Now, as the world holds its breath, a new tale unfolds, a story of courage, of triumph against all odds. Join us as we delve into the depths of imagination, as we embark on a journey beyond the realms of possibility. For in every tale lies a lesson, in every legend a truth waiting to be discovered. This is not just a podcast. This is an odyssey, a quest for knowledge, a quest for inspiration, a quest for the very essence of what it means to be human. Welcome, dear listeners, to a world of infinite possibilities. Welcome, dear listeners, to the True Life Podcast. Welcome back to the True Life Podcast. We are here with friend of the show, author, explorer, Mr. Kevin Holt. How are you, my friend? Hey, good morning or good afternoon for you, I guess. I'm well. So wait, wait, where in California are you? Uh, Northern California, up in Sonoma here. You just, we drove like 20 minutes from my wife's house and there's like a little wine tasting place. Get a couple glasses of wine, some cheese, 50, 60 bucks. You know, it's, wow. it's pretty... Yeah, it's pretty awesome. It is pretty awesome. I've still never been to California. The closest I got was Vegas, which my we talked recently. I was flying through Vegas to come back home here to Bali. I, I got to be honest, I, I hated Vegas. I thought it was <laughs> the most absurd place I've ever been to. Because if you think about it from high level, it's the desert. You've got all these giant lights, gaudy things in the middle of the desert. It's like 120 degrees Fahrenheit during the day. And so you're just stuck inside in the AC, so you're using even more power. And it's like right. all powered by the Hoover. We use, I guess there's solar power now, but it was the Hoover Dam powering all this stuff. And it just seemed like insane, the, the amount of power consumption that it just made this artificial city in the middle of the desert. Yeah. Like how, how talk about something that's unsustainable, you know, it's just. Yeah. <laughs> and then the, uh, Lake Mead, Lake Mead, which is what powers the Hoover Dam is like almost bone dry. Because we went to the yeah. Hoover Dam, and you could actually see the stone where the water used to be, and it's all bleached white, where so you can see the water slowly going down. And they're saying that if it doesn't rain enough in the next couple of years, there won't be enough water in the lake to actually spin the turbines at the dam. And then you're like, well, all right, well, what happens to Vegas then? Because all these people are going to just melt in the heat because you won't be able to power AC anymore. Yeah, it's yeah. game over for those guys, I think. It, it it becomes the new gold rush, or it follows the path of the 49ers. You know, it's just going to be this empty empty town. Like, how, how can you live out there without power? There's no way. No. And then I realized the Hoover Dam doesn't power just Vegas. It powers, like, seven, like across seven states. I'm like, holy crap, yeah. this is not sustainable at all. 
you know what I wonder? Sometimes I wonder, like, if you look at the way in which we've dammed up the rivers and changed the course, the, the way the water runs through the United States, like, that has to change the environment throughout the United States. If the Colorado River continued to flow the way it did, then you would continue to have the ecosystems along that river. And once you dam it up, you fundamentally change the environment below the river, up the river. It seems like maybe that is what climate change is, is at least a factor of climate change is us damming and changing the rivers. Yeah. And this human concept or the desire we have to control our nature, which has brought a lot of boons, but maybe we're altering the course of things in critical ways, as you mentioned. We can't know. Yeah. We're, we're control freaks, I suppose. <laughs> we are control freaks. Like what what do you yeah. think that is about us? Like what what is it about us that that allows us to want to fundamentally change or be in control? Do you think it's the fact that we know we're going to die, so we're trying to control the time that we have? Yeah, I think it's just fear. I think it's it's just a way to make sense of the world, and if the little bits of control you can exert over your world make you feel more secure, I suppose. Okay, so that leads me to a really great question I want to ask you. This idea of us wanting to control stuff. Do you think that that's how we came up with like the idea of science? Like I've been running this idea in my head lately. Like, you know, hmm. it seems to me that science is the glass spheres that held the heavenly bodies in ancient Greece. Science is the vehicle used by bankers to transport trillions of dollars of unfunded liabilities. Science to me is becoming this word that is just, false it's like science to me is, is it seems to me that we are seeing that science isn't true and I, I don't know how to square that like the more that i think about science the more that i think about a handful of people controlling knowledge that may or may not be true yeah that's a big can of worms the i don't know science i think in my opinion we have to sort of put a dividing line somewhere um across the, dis the disciplines, right? So it seems like there is a science that is concerned with the study of physical things and really just measuring and observing things, more like concrete, I suppose, like world-based. And then there's this other science that's, for example, the social sciences. Right. To what extent can you say a social science is a science? Because you're not, a lot of times you're not measuring physical things, you're measuring like behavior or evolution of culture and things like that. So it's a little less tangible. Um, I don't know. I think initially science was nothing more than that it was like observation of the natural world and just us trying to get an understanding of this weird subjective reality that we appear to be living in. <clears throat> but then at some point it became uh, culty, I suppose is the word where um, people are willing to die on the cross of science just as, Damn, my headphones keep falling out. Um, dying the cross of science just as they were on the on the, the Christian cross, you know? And I'm not sure when that split happened. If there it's been more more prevalent recently because people have sort of lost you know faith in faith or in established religions, and yeah. there's a void there. And then that void's been now filled with politics and and um, almost irrational belief in certain science. Yeah, that's a great point. You're right. There should be a dividing line between the soft sciences and people that are actually practicing, observing, and then trying to quantify things. 
sometimes yes. I just wonder if we really have the ability to to understand our environment and, and make up and make decisions about what we see. Like, how can it not be subjective? How how can we really quantify what it means to be to, to have the human experience? I think we're just trying so hard to do this stuff. We end up pigeonholing ourselves and making things worse sometimes. Yeah, that's. I didn't know how far down this rabbit hole you want to go, but yeah, if we're gonna if we're gonna <laughs> further go into what physical science is, I mean, it's also belief based because mm. I mean, little background. I tried to major in physics when I was um, nineteen, and I I love physics. I'm terrible at the math of physics, but I love the the theoretical conceptual part, and. Early on, I kind of realized we don't know anything because they kept revising their view of the world. And then you look at the things that we have to measure the world, and they're always suggesting, or they're more and more suggesting that we don't know what the fundamental particles of the world are because they keep finding new things, like new smaller things. First it was the atom, then it was the electron, and then it was quarks. And then it's you know, hadrons, and they got the hadron collider. And I feel like every couple of years, they define something else that they didn't know about before. And now you've got the string theory, which says everything is vibrating strings. And if you, it's so difficult to reconcile what science says with what we see, right? Because we see things as solid and tangible, but science says exactly the opposite. There's nothing is solid or tangible at all. And there's nothing there. And it's all energy, like going around chaotically and combining to form things that we use our senses to get information from and interpret. So it's like everything is energy, but our senses give us certain information to make it appear solid. So even that, like the physical science, like we're studying our world and the earth and all these things. And you're like, well, what are we actually even looking at? Because <laughs> everything is filtered through our senses anyway. And we, I mean, it sounds crazy, but like I can't even say for sure that this thing really is this, right? Yeah. It's just I'm getting information from my eyes and my hands about it, but I don't know if that information is accurate. Yeah, and not, and I could see the same thing, but I could see something totally different. Yeah, and uh, not only physical things, but like also we're talking about reality also being subjective, and you can see it. For, this might be over, like over people's heads. They might not be ready to like think about the world this way. But like, here's an example that I think everyone can relate to, where information is now pretty much belief based because mm -hmm. the way social media works, the algorithms filter out what you what you like. So if you are on one political side or another or in a third one or whatever, you're going to consume information that's going to meet what you enjoy. And then that's going to be kind of like all you see. So one event can be spun two or three different ways. Like there can be one event in the world, you know, so-and-so, you know, like we haven't, we are in a recession. And then another person will spin that exact same of circumstances saying, oh, we're actually in a, in a controlled contraction done by our wonderful leaders. So you don't even see the world the same way. <laughs> and that's just one example of it. That's a great example. It, it makes me wonder. I think it opens up a third possibility. I think it opens up the possibility of being able to see it from a third person point of view. Because I bet you yourself and everybody listening to this, 
knows somebody that's like, oh, I love Donald Trump. The other person's like, oh, I hate Donald. You know, I, I'm a hardcore Democrat. But if you can sit in the middle, you can see both sides of it the same way that, you, you know, you could see two different people in two different echo chambers watching the same event and coming up with a different idea of what that event is. On some mm-hmm. level, might that give us a clearer picture of how to solve the problem? If the person can sit back, to sit, okay, like this, the same way that you can see a friend in a relationship that's in a bad relationship because you're on the outside, you're like, that's never going to work with that girl, man. That, you guys are a mess together, but they can't see it because they're in it. The same way we can now look at society, that, oh, well, these guys hate these people and these people hate these people. Shouldn't, shouldn't that at least give us guys like us or people watching from a third person point of view a clearer perspective of what might help solve the problem? Yeah, that's a great point. And then, of course, raises the question, how do you get to that perspective? How do you extract yourself from the complicated web of your belief systems and perceptions, which have caused you to be in it, quote unquote? So you're in it. How do you get out of it? And there are, I mean, there are a number of ways, which I'm sure we can talk about that I think help, um, you know, being the observer, meditation, yoga Mm -hmm. helps, breath work kind of thing helps, psychedelics can help. Right. Uh, Sometimes it's like life trauma. I mean, you write about it in your book where with the death of your son, it kind of just like took you out of things and you had this almost like divine uh, oneness experience where you're sort of observing everything from on high. So those those things can can do that. But um, the only deliberate ways I know of are, like I said, meditation and psychedelics. They really help with that. Yeah, and those two are are their own form of tragedy. You know, if, whether they're self inflicted or 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 slipped into you or tra- trauma based, like it is the tragic event or the trauma event. And you know what? This brings me. This kind of brings us full circle to like the initiation rituals in in any kind of. Um, in the majority of cultures is an initiation ritual, especially like in the Native Americans or the South American shamanism or even some of the Eastern traditions where, you know, you go into a cave and it simulates the rebirth or you, you know, you dance until you drop or you get beaten. Even, even in modern day gangs, like you get, have to get jumped into a gang, you have to get beaten up in some ways that's getting beaten up or going to live in a cave is the same way as having the scales fall from your eyes or it represents a new way to see the world the same way we were talking about. It's kind of interesting to think about it like that. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, these shocks. It's almost like we're asleep and then there's some kind of external shock, either deliberate or accidental, that just kind of like jolts you out of it and you go, oh, okay, and then you take this outside view and you go, what the hell am I doing? What have I been doing? What, you know, what is this world? Is it even real? Who, who knows? And then you might go insane. Maybe not. I don't know. But uh, I'd say going insane is a good thing because the world is crazy. So if you go insane in a crazy world, it means you're sane, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, I saw a good video graphic one time. And it was like, in a world where everyone's crazy, the sane person is running towards the criminal or something along those lines. Yeah, yeah. You know, and it, was like, it, was really, it was really well done. It makes me. Yeah, there's a fine line between a shamanic type person and an insane person. And I think that in old times, they used to almost revere the the epileptics and the schizophrenics 
because they they thought they had some divine power. And sometimes I wonder about the schizophrenics, like that that disease in itself, if it isn't. I don't know. I'm just talking out of my ass here right now, but I wonder if they're sometimes getting too much information, where we have these these conscious filters of our world, and maybe they're getting like everything. So they're hearing voices, but they're not making it up. They're just taking it in more, and that's probably like impossible to handle. Absolutely. You know, they've done. I'm sure you've read about some of the studies where they, in epileptic people that have it bad, they'll cut the corpus callosum, which is the that thin thread that. So you have two hemispheres in the brain and, and there's a, there's like a long twisted, it's not a tube, but it's like a huge piece of, of fiber that runs between those two hemispheres of the brain and it sends information back and forth. And people that have epilepsy really bad, they've cut that corpus callosum and it dramatically stops all the seizures and it somewhat cures the people. It doesn't really cure them, but it, it really helps the people that have had bad epilepsy epilepsy and can't move through their days they've done some interesting experiments well after they have severed the corpus callosum they'll ask people to use their right hand to draw what they wanted to be when they were a kid and the right hand will draw like a fireman and then they'll ask them to use their left hand in the same question and it'll draw like a race car driver you know oh. and they'll ask them like why did you draw a race car driver if you want to be a fireman and the and they'll be like that is a fireman so they've done some, yeah, they've done some incredible experiments on that. And, and it also makes me think that, you know, the right hemisphere of the brain tends to be the one that understands the different ideas and is not so much the analytical part, but more the one that gets the big picture of things. So someone that has epilepsy, they would be revered because they would be seeing the world differently. They would have a whole nother view. So if you talk to somebody, it's, it's possible that they may have had answers that the other people didn't have. And that could be another reason why it's pretty fascinating to think about. Yeah. That's really interesting. I also think it's because it's so close to dying, I guess they suddenly have these attacks and they're seizing up. Yeah. So that's the shamanic way, right? This should, the shaman is supposed to be someone who walks the line between life and death. And I think most historically, most of the people that become shamans, they do so after some kind of near-death experience where they really go to the brink and they sort of now see the spirit world to some degree, or at least claim to be able to. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that brings me to another idea. I was just thinking about psychedelics the other day. And I was thinking that I think we've all seen the images of people. I'll just use psilocybin for this particular example. Have you seen the example of people that like take psychedelics and they go in the MRI and it shows their brain scan and, they take someone who doesn't take psychedelics and they show their brain scan and where it lights up and the imagery is, it shows the connections between the brain, but it's sparse. However, when mm -hmm. someone has taken a large amount of psilocybin, they put them in the, MF, or in the MFRI and the whole brain center is lit up. And what they explained was when you take psychedelics, what's happening is it overrides the default mode network. And so it connects yep. the brain in different types of ways. And that would mean that you are able to process visual information in Broca's area and you are able to process speech in the visual cortex. And that's what would give you the form of synesthesia and stuff. And if you do psychedelics long enough, we know from modern brain papers that people have written that once you build the, the connection between different brain centers, those connections tend to stay there. So if you do enough psychedelics, wouldn't it make sense that some residue of pathways are left between the visual cortex and the speech center. So even when you're stopped taking them, 
you're still going to process a little bit of that information in different parts of the area. And that, that seems to me why people that take large amounts of psychedelics would probably be able to see or begin to see the world differently because they're still able to process regular information in different parts of the brain. What do you yeah. think about that? I think that's definitely, you know, one thing that could be going on. There's, I forget who said this, but the way they explain, I think it was Rick Strassman potentially who explained in a way that I liked. He's, he compared the brain to a computer and he says, he gives an example that when your waking consciousness can maybe process something like 4,000 bytes per second. And when you put that brain on psychedelics, it can go up to like millions. And so wow. he's posturing that there is a, it kind of ties back into our discussion of the physical world and what it is and what it appears to be. So if the world is vastly different than what we see it, but we need to see it a certain way consciously in order to survive in it, perhaps there is some mechanism in our brain that filters out the quote unnecessary information that we don't need to survive. Mm. And then when you take a psychedelic, it removes that filter. Similarly, what you said about the default node network, and you're now taking in way more information consciously. So the world appears very different. And anyone that's been on a psychedelic experience will know this. Like you start to see, I mean, time has a whole different relevance. Yeah. Time is like elastic. It contracts and expands in ways that you don't experience normally. You see there's a kind of telepathy that happens between people that I've experienced multiple times, which I can't explain any other way than the fact that we're sharing thoughts. That's really the only way I can think of it. And then, of course, you have the synesthesia effect where you experience senses differently. Colors change. And you almost see, I don't know, the first time I did LSD, I would compare it to um, if you'd never been to a 3D movie before and you put on those glasses for the first time and you just see these like extra layers to everything. Yeah. That to me was the experience. And I, I, that's a way I like to see it. You're just taking in more information that uh, you normally don't. Yeah, that's awesome. But, but, um, but you don't see it consciously. That's another way of thinking about it. Well, can you repeat that? I didn't catch that. You're like maybe you are always taking in all information, but um, maybe your subconscious is always taking it in, but it's just filtered out in your conscious mind. Yeah, yeah. It, it leads me to a another like idea. Like I, I'm so enamored with language. And I think that so many of the secrets that seem profound are hidden in our daily language. Like an example would be like, oh, if you take LSD or these psychedelics, it really opens your eyes or that's really eye opening or man, it made the scales fall from my eyes. And every time you're on it, it seems to me every time you're on psychedelics, like your pupils are like super dilated. And like, yeah. what better, it's just so weird that we would use that terminology when in fact, that's exactly what it does. But what's behind the term, it opens your eyes. That means that you see more. It means that you get more information, that you understand more. At least it's a kind of a connotation like that. And it's just so weird that those drugs would come with that kind of explanation and also have that same sort of function you know and it makes me start thinking like mm -hmm. what other phrases are like that like well how about a stream of consciousness consciousness mm -hmm. might be like a stream that flows through your daily life it also flows through your brain the same way and it has all these different offshoots and that would explain why we don't focus on one thing so good we're always daydreaming and we're thinking about this and 
There's all these things going through our mind that we think are not connected, but they are in fact part of the same river system. You know what I mean? Isn't that weird how language works like that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And to expand on the consciousness thing, I guess there's one view of the world which is interesting. I think it's Hindu. Oh, sorry, something just fell. Uh oh, you all right? Yeah, I'm good. Um, the the term Brahman, which is I think Hindu, which is that's the universal consciousness. So the, in their model of things, everything is consciousness expressing itself. So you have Brahman, which is the godlike universal consciousness, consciousness, and then Atman, which is us, like our we're like little individual packets of consciousness experiencing the rest of consciousness, but. We have the illusion that we're separate, mm-hmm. and that's where a lot of the, the troubles come in life where we think we are separate entities and we don't understand this connection to the overall Brahman greater consciousness. And I suppose that's one way to think about as like when you open your eyes to these psychedelics or you see this stream of consciousness, it's almost, almost as if that barrier dissolves a little bit between the individual and the all. And yeah, I've had these, I don't know if we could talk about, I'd like to hear your experiences with psychedelics, yeah. but I've had those, what the, it's the same thing that the, the spiritual writers of antiquity write about when they talk about samadhi, which is this idea of being part of the, the one consciousness, being part of everything, all is one, all these writings. I've, the only time I've really felt that is on psychedelics. I mean, once or twice, in meditation deeply and then in breath work as well but like most clearly in psychedelics where i literally had these moments of no separation like my body is gone it's just consciousness i'm just perceiving and there's nothing else that's all that there is but i'm curious to hear about uh, what you've tried and like what what you've gotten yeah let's 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 start trading some stories i um i i'm a big fan of psychedelics and i started off you know, probably 17, I used to take like a split an eighth with a friend and go watch a laser show. And the that was even on such a small dose. I remember, I think maybe one time, yeah, I think it was an eighth. And I just remember having this unbelievable sense of clarity. I don't know what I was clear about, but I remember the clarity. And I just was like, oh, I get it. And I, I could hold this concept in my mind for a minute. And then I, I had taken a lot of time off. And then throughout my life in my 20s and you know i would say from 18 to 20 i tried a lot of lsd i tried a lot of mushrooms and then later in my life when i turned about 40 i started experimenting again and as of recently i've really moved towards you know i saw terence mckenna's heroic dose and i decided it wasn't heroic enough for me you know (laughs) I did take to heart his idea. One thing that Ken, McKenna said that really strikes me is that he, he, he would always say that, you know, if you take mushrooms, the amount you should take, if, if you take mushrooms and you're not scared to death, you think you're going to die, then you haven't taken enough. Like that's how you know what the dose is. And so I took that to heart and I, I started off I, around 40. I started taking like seven grams. And then recently, my, my most recent one, I did like 18 grams. And it was like, yeah, yeah, it was, it was fucking mind-blowing. And literally, it was, 
it started off like obviously I'm, I'm, I'm I want to say I'm a responsible person. I don't know if doing 18 grams is a responsible thing. So anyone listening to this, you should definitely be mindful if you're going to do it. You, you know, maintain your set and setting. Tell your loved ones you're doing it. You know, make sure you know, the kids aren't around. And so I had all my bases covered. I, I told my wife, hey, I'm going, I'm going big tonight. She's like, just leave me alone. Don't come in my room. Don't come in the room. You know, <laughs> you're going to be okay. I'm like, I'll be fine. And so what I have found on this particular dose was something let me tell you what the trip was and then I'll tell you what I found different about large doses that is different than smaller doses. So this trip for me, I, I just laid in darkness and I took, took the huge dose and about three or four hours in, like it started coming on really strong. And, um, I, I began to like hear not so much like a voice outside of me, but a voice inside my head. And I, I felt like I was talking to an alien. And mm. it was more like, it was more, I say alien, not like a ET, but alien in that it was something I had never felt before. Like a true alien experience, like something you've never heard, never seen, or never can't even understand. I couldn't understand it because it was alien to me. But there was information I was getting about the world we live in. And it was all, it was a religious experience because that's the best word I can use to describe it. It was this idea that we are in fact one with everything, that we came from a different planet. And this is going to sound crazy. I don't know how true it is, but this is what I thought on the trip. I thought on the trip that like specifically white people. And I don't know how, this is probably going to sound so crazy, but like, this is what I thought on the trip. Yeah, throw it out there. I love crazy shit. <laughs> okay. So during this trip, I came to the realization, I heard in my head that I, we, like specifically white people are aliens to this planet. And we are supposed to be here not to run over everything or, or be at war with everything, but we landed on this planet. When we landed on this planet, we began fighting each other because we didn't come here. We, we crashed here on this planet and there was two factions of us. And in my mind, like we, it was in the Middle East somewhere where we crashed in this planet and we ended up killing ourselves. And somewhere along the line, in order to stop the war that was happening on the planet, we decided to hide all evidence of us being from a different planet. That was the only way to bring the people of this planet together was to hide the true history of our world. And so at that point in time, I go, holy shit, that makes so much sense. Jesus was an alien. Yeah, of course Jesus was an alien, you know? And then I'm like, okay, I, I should get my phone and start trying to call people, which is a horrible idea. I can't even <laughs> see stuff on my phone, you know? And, and at that point in time, I'm laying down in my living room, in my library, and I'm just looking up at all these books like, all these books tell the same story and like just having these crazy thoughts of like the, the, that which resides in me wrote all these books. Thus I wrote all these books. I know all the stories in these books because I've lived them before. These are my lives. And I, okay. And here's what's different about the big trips for me is that on a regular trip, say three to seven grams, you come up through your cycles. It comes through waves, waves, bigger waves, you go through the sets, and then it backs back down. And mm -hmm. I felt like on a seven gram dose, it was almost between seven and 10 grams. It's almost impossible to bring back from the peak of the event 
what you experience. It's all fuzzy mm. and hazy. However, on a super high dose of psilocybin, I learned that there's a peak and then there's a second peak. And the clarity of that second peak is much more clear and tangible than the peak of a regular or even a five gram heroic dose trip. Because I've had some trips before where like, oh, I think there was really cool stuff, but I don't remember it. But this trip, like I can remember being there so clear and I can remember laying on the ground and hearing the voice to this day tell me, we are the aliens. You are the aliens. Every species, you're here to protect every species on this planet because it's not ours. And it's important that you take care of everything, you know? And I was just, kind of gives me goosebumps thinking about it. But so, so yep. that was one of the, the bigger trips that I've done. And the, the rare thing on it was I found a double peak with extreme clarity. And it makes sense if you go up higher, you should have a clearer view, right? Yeah. Yeah, they so, say when you send the higher dimensions, it's even clearer. Maybe yeah, that's it, where you went. You went 60 or some shit. Dude, it was, it was wild, man. And it was wild. Thank you for letting me share that. I, 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 I think I'm crazy, but that's what it was. It no, was, no. It was beautiful in so many ways. I love this kind of stuff. I love it. It was a big nice. mystery. I have a kind of alien experience as well. That's why I enjoy please. the story. Yeah, please. Would you uh, would you be share that for us? If we're talking about mushrooms, I've tried almost every psychedelic except for Ibogaine. Ooh, but okay. if we're talking about mushrooms um i had two very memorable and profound experiences the first one i don't even know how much i ate like it could have been a high dose but it was a huge bag right and it was like i was at a music festival for four days it oh, was the awesome. last day and it was the last day it was hot and sunny the whole time i've been partying for three days not really drinking water or whatever and this bag of mushrooms falls into my lap i didn't even really want it <laughs> but someone was leaving and they're like, we have these mushrooms. I was like, yeah, I got to take them. You know, I got to yep. at least buy them. I tried to give them away. I was like, I really didn't want them. I was like, guys, who wants it? Nobody wanted it. Everyone was tired and four days of partying. And then it was like, I don't know how much it was, but it was like a bag this big. Oh, that's huge. Of small mushrooms. So it's probably at least seven grams. At least oh, seven grams. I don't know. an ounce that big, man. Maybe. I don't know. But I just like, all right, well, we can't let these go to waste. So I just sat there and very slowly ate all of them. <laughs> and then... And then I had a horrible experience at first mm. because as soon as it kicked in, I realized how horribly dehydrated I was. Yeah. And um, I was like, literally, I, I like laid in and the sun was still out. The sun was hot. So I was like crawling around the grass looking for shade, right, just to get away from the sun. And I couldn't yeah. like I was too weak to get up. And I actually had a friend. I was like, can you get me some water? And he, he brought me some water and I was like, and the water was making me like feel nauseous almost like, cause that's, I had, I, I realized later I had a like heat stroke or sunstroke yeah. and it was supposed to kick in and I was just feeling bad. And, um, I was like, I was laying in the grass and I laid down and looked at the sky and it just started to watch the clouds and just feeling terrible. And I started having what you described, which happens to me a lot is this kind of dialogue. And yeah, that's a good I way to put it. Think, yeah, and it, but it's a, it's a thought form dialogue. Yep. So it's not in words, but I would think a thought, and that thought would be answered either instantaneously. That thought would be answered either with another thought or some kind of event or something happening in the world. So I was sitting there, like, kind of playing with this thought communication 
feeling horrible, right? Feeling horrible and yeah. and thinking, oh my God, I'm gonna like, am I gonna die? And I, I was like, I thought I was gonna die because I yeah, imagine the worst case, like, fuck, I'm gonna die here. I can't get myself up. Like, I can't get home. It was like an hour and a half from home. Um, so I started conversing with this thing. I don't know. We had this little conversation, and I said to it, um, "Am I going to die today?" And then it said, "No." And I said, "Okay." And I felt better. And then I asked it of curiosity. I was like, what happens when you die? And instantly I was filled with like this endless joy and like this, the white light thing, like just filled with this infinite joyous white light warmth thing where I was completely at peace, like just no worry at all. And like joy. And like, I'm shaking too. Like I'm just trying to remember this. Yeah. I was like, oh, shit. right. And it was just like, Whoa. And then after that, it only lasted a couple of seconds, but it's what the people talk about with the near death experience where they go through the tunnel, they see the light, they feel the joy. And I thought, Oh, well then there's really nothing to worry about. Is there? And I just felt like fine. And all the, everything went away. And I was like, Oh, okay. I'm good. Even if I die, like it's (laughs) right. That's awesome. So I was sitting there and, um, you know, eventually got better and was like drinking water. And I'm, I'm like, man, it's been hours. And I look at my phone and it was like 20 minutes. <laughs> I was like, oh shit, I have three hours of this trip left to enjoy. Mm-hmm. Right. So, <laughs> you know, then I drank water, I felt better. And I was just like, I went in the woods or whatever. And I was like playing with the squirrels and birds and stuff and just enjoying my time. And then I, I managed to get home and I needed like four liters of IV hydration. Um, my mom's a nurse. She's like, she took one look at me. She's like, man, you're fucked up. And then uh, she laid me up on the couch and, and gave me an IV drip to sort of get my my energy back. And I was like, that just stuck with me. That was almost 10 years ago. And I still remember that. Man. And so that was my, my major experience with what you described this like something. Uh, maybe it's a hallucination. Maybe it's what happens to schizophrenics. I don't know. But it felt like I was speaking with something. And then I had another experience where it was, I don't think it was as high a dose, but it was something like a heroic dose where I did what you did. I laid down in the dark yeah. at nighttime and I was sort of staring at the ceiling and then through the ce- like whatever I was looking at the ceiling, a shape coalesced out of something in the ceiling. And it was like a face of sorts. And I remember thinking, okay, this, maybe this is an entity of some sort. Cause it looked like it was looking at me and um, I started playing with it. I was like, all right, well, I'm going to, I'm going to try to talk to this thing. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I asked it, it is all mental. Of course, it's all yeah. thought forms. And uh, I said, I said, what are you? And then it showed me a series of images that meant architect. It was wow. a symbol for architect. I was like, okay, interesting. And then I said, how do I, so by the little context, I'm laying in my bed, it's pitch dark. I know that somewhere over to the left of my bed, there is a cup of water. I don't know where it is. It just, and um, so I said, how do I know you are real? And then the next thing that happened is my lips got very dry and I needed to take a water. And then I went and reached blindly for the cup and I my hand hit the cup exactly where it needed to be it was like it found it instantly yeah. like and then I'm like okay like well, what do I do with that right like is that <laughs> proof or is it 
because nine, nine, you know, nine times out of ten, when I'm looking for the cup to the side of my bed, I've got to look around, I've got to exactly. search for it, maybe knock it over or whatever. This one time, it's like, okay, it's exactly there, right? Yeah. Uh, so it's just one of those mysteries that you don't know what the hell it is, and it's just kind of amusing. But yeah, I wonder about that. I wonder if there are these these other dimensions out there that are invisible, and then we sort of interact with with energy. Like, why wouldn't there be energy that's invisible? That's maybe a being of pure consciousness that doesn't have a physical form. Like, it's possible. So I, I leave it open to, to possibility. Yeah, I, I would agree with you. I think it's naive to, like, we in the beginning of the podcast, we were already talking about the limitations of our knowledge. I think it'd be pretty, pretty hubristic to think that we know what happens. Like, we don't, we don't know anything. You know, we are, I think we're barely out of the trees in some ways. Like, and how many times, like, I, how many times do you hear people talk about a guardian angel or someone that saves them or like, there's clearly something we're interacting with that changes the course of our life, you know, call it God or Buddha or Allah or whatever spiritual being you believe it to be. Like there's something there. And when you ignore it and pretend it doesn't exist, and, it, and make a conscious decision to ignore the signs in front of you that ends up being pretty bad or a lot, it, at least for some people, I think, you know, I, yeah. there has to be some energy there. I, I think it's, I think you could prove it. I, I don't know how to prove it, but I think it can be done. <laughs> Me neither. Cause everything's so subjective. I'm not sure how to prove it, but I think you said guardians and I think it was Carl Jung or somebody mm. who was really prolific and creative that ascribed all of their creativity to uh, some kind of guardian being that they encountered through maybe with psychedelics or whatever. And this, this, they gave it a name too. They, they said this being called whatever appeared in my life. And that was a source of all my, my inspiration for all the work I've done in my life. So that's, you know, something to consider, yeah. I guess. So like yeah. voices in your head, maybe don't drown them out right away. Yeah, I think Tesla, too, said that he was told all his inventions. He was told, he spoke to an entity, and I think it's pretty prolific through different mystics throughout the time about how, how ideas were given to him and passed on to them. Some of them nefarious in some ways. But yeah, I, I you know, you that's a good power point. Why couldn't there be evil ones out there, trickster ones? Right? If there are, you know, they're not all angels. And it's, I guess, be careful if you're a psychonaut and you <laughs> go out on these journeys. You know what? Like speaking of nefarious energies and psychedelics, like I, I found too, I had a trip a while back that was maybe like five grams. And I found myself in a place about three hours in where, you know, I felt like I was communing with spirits. I felt like I could try on different ideas. And what I mean by that is that I had idea, like, I felt like ideas were given to me that I could use on my podcast. And some of them I would try on and be like, that is way too sinister. I would never do that. I would never say this about this group of people, but I could see how powerful that would be. Like that would be pretty powerful. You would probably get a lot of stuff if you did that, but that's a horrible thing to do. But in that, in that moment, like, I was just, I felt like I was in a store and I had different people there that were like, hey, try this one on. Okay. Oh, that sounds interesting, but I'm not a horrible person. Thanks. You can have that one back. Or, hey, how about this one? Hey, I've never thought about it like that. But it, 
I was able to try on ideas and see through them the potential outcomes like I would see through a mask. And it was it was pretty liberating and in some ways like very fulfilling to be there. I'm like, I can't believe I'm here getting to learn these things. And it, it made me realize that maybe the greatest information isn't something we learn. It's something that's revealed to us. You know, you start mm. thinking about all these people that have come up with ideas. It's like, oh, I was laying under the Buddha tree or I was just out here doing some things. And then it's, I had this idea. But it seemed, once I was in that state, it like clicked. I'm like, oh, I see. These ideas are revealed to you. It's not that you've learned them and you've studied. and stuff, or maybe, like Both of us probably do a lot of reading. However, I think the ideas can be revealed to you. And then you're like, oh, this is not my idea. This is everybody's idea. I just tapped into it. I got an idea. I want to pitch it to you. Let me know what you yeah. think about this. Something Please. I was curious about for a while, but never really gave much energy to. But let me like lay a bit of a foundation first. Fantastic. So the whole, we talked about psychedelics. We talked about what happens to the mind. And we talked about some sort of telepathy that may happen. And um, it's hard to know if it's happening when you're doing it by yourself, but I've had some experiences with others where I feel like there is a kind of telepathy or shared consciousness going on. So there is one story where I think it was, it was a few years ago, I had an older friend. Uh, he was probably you know 50 at the time, and he had never done any psychedelic before, and he, he knew I had experience. So he reached out. He's like, I want to try mushrooms. And I said, cool, like, why don't you come over on Saturday and then we'll do mushrooms. So I didn't do as much as him because I wanted to stay somewhat like alert because I you know, right. wanted to make sure he didn't have any major issues that I had to be alert for. So we what we did was we just took the mushrooms. We laid on the couch. We had this like day bed thing that we just laid out on, closed our eyes, did not say a word for three hours. We just lay down and closed our eyes. I got up, my trip was over. I sat up, opened my eyes. About two minutes later, he sat up and opened his eyes and we recounted our trips and it was like so much overlap. Like we all had, we had like this, we saw the same things. We experienced the same insights. It was like we, a shared experience. It's kind of weird. And then I gave him some to take home with him. I was like, hey, if you want to like, you know, I had some extra. So I'll take this home, like experiment with yourself if you want. He goes home. Few weeks later i see him again and he said he he got his wife to try them because his wife was curious and she was a devout muslim at the time i believe like pretty strict and she took them by herself in her bedroom and my friend was watching tv or whatever and they had two kids and the daughter was in his third room coloring and so his wife had her experience when she was done she got up to go see what her daughter was doing her daughter was drawing the tree of life on a piece of paper and she had seen that exact image during her trip. So this is the groundwork for, and I had other like minor things where I feel like I'm sharing someone's mind or we're thinking the same vibration level or whatever. We're on the same wavelength. So this is the groundwork for what I'm trying to propose to you. Yeah. So we have this concept of shared telepathy via psychedelics. The other concept of the mind as a transmitter of brainwaves and intentions and thoughts and the idea of a mastermind 
where when you get a bunch of people in a room together and you all focus on the same thing or image or goal, the amplification effect of that. Now, what if you had that combined with a psychedelic experience? What if you had something like a ritual, like uh, I'm in the, I mentioned before in the last podcast, I'm in the Freemasons where we have these rituals and we have a, a meeting or a ceremony or something all under the influence of such a thing and all directed to one singular purpose, like what you could potentially create in the world with that kind of sustained, intense energy. I'm just throwing that idea out there. Like I'd be fascinated to, to, I don't know, try it or I don't organize people to do this. I don't know how, but it would be interesting. Okay. You know, I'll blow your mind right now. I was going to ask you, what do you think a new Eleusinian Mysteries would look like? Like, I'm just thinking about that. I was saying that. (laughs) I've been thinking about it a lot. Like, Talk yeah. about that for sure, shared telepathy. Like I was up yeah. here in the wineries thinking like, okay, you know, can I find a winery that has a theater that you could invite people to and you would have like a oh. sort of a Cirque de Soleil where people came in the crowd and like, you know, you would you would want to recreate. I, I know from reading a little bit about the Eleusinian Mysteries that part of the play they did was when Demeter lost her daughter Persephone. So imagine a crowd of like-minded people on sort of a, you know, three gram psychedelic trip and they take it and they're all sitting together in this theater and there's lights and you watch this woman lose a child, be it through some sort of tragedy. Imagine what a felt tragedy under the influence of psychedelics would be like. It would be like all of us together losing that child because you would feel that experience. You would feel the connection with the people next to you. And then all of a sudden, the reconnection, the daughter reappears. And so now you have this shared loss. You have a shared sense of tragedy, which brings everybody together. And then you have a shared sense of gratitude that releases the negative energy. And it's like, dude, we did it, you know? And it's the same way that the brain builds better relationships by going back and forth through the synaptic gap, that kind of connection between people, when you have shared goals and shared sacrifices, potentially under the influence of a psychedelic, I think it's that sort of healing process that would help people. And if if you want to break it down to like a fractal level, so above, so below, if that's the way the brain works to make better connections, why wouldn't it work the same way between people? If two people can feel the exact same loss, see, I can't, I can explain the loss to you about my son, but you can't experience it. However, you can see, if you see someone lose their child and I see someone lose their child, we may not explain it the same way, but we feel it intense together. Yeah. And that's the same way that that's better than any language. That's, that is a true communication of feeling between one another. Yeah. So I think that that's something that would happen if you found yourself in a ritualistic setting and use psychedelics in that way. I think that the possibilities are endless. I mean, maybe, yeah. maybe you could argue Charles Manson did that though, too. Yeah. I was going to say, I mean, what's <laughs> different from this than an adult, you know? <laughs> <laughs> The, yeah. I think the t- I think the intention maybe you know I mean yeah maybe the word cult gets a bad name I mean so maybe. much of the cult and may- maybe that's on purpose 
You know, maybe the word cult gets a bad name because we don't want people divvying too far from the productive nature of multinational corporations. Definitely could be that. I like the analogy you have with the with the synapses. I was just visualizing how individual people would be those synapses. Or like we were talking about Brahman being the universal yes. consciousness. And we have these points of consciousness of people, but then yeah. these points emerge and you have suddenly instead of this, you have like say this of the greater whole. Yeah. And then what you could carve out of the greater whole with an expanded group of co-acting consciousness. That's interesting to me. Yeah, well, it, I, I look at it like this. Like, so, so think of George Monty or Kevin Holt as a thought in the mind of God. And all of a sudden, the more you focus, like you have begun developing yourself as a thought into an idea, into an action. Like you've, you, you are Kevin Holt who decided to travel and then write a book. And now you're doing these podcasts. You're traveling the world. So it's like you're gaining this momentum. You're growing as a thought to an idea and becoming an action. So if we are thoughts in the mind of God, then perhaps the main goal for each one of us should be to become an action of God. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, I like that. Feeling, right? Well, yeah, that's what they say. The way to experience the divine is to have it act through you and to have the wow. divine actor within you, right? Because we're there's creation. We are, it's the same analogy again. Like if everything is God, everything is Brahman and we're the Atman, we're the small piece of Brahman, then our task is to be the whole through the one. And then our action would then has, what's the word? Like we would export that into the world with our creation. Yeah. So by, by creating, we are the creator as above, so yeah. below. Yeah. Do you get that? Like when you wrote your book, do you get the feeling like, like people read it and it helps them? Like, how does that feel for you? Uh, I mean, it feels good. You know, if like, uh, if they enjoy it, then awesome. Yeah. Um, nobody reads it. Okay. But you know, I, I hope people will read it and, and get a sense of what I'm trying to say. And I would love to be able, I wish you could, it goes back to where you're saying about shared feelings. Sometimes I wish I could like just, I think we stopped for a minute there. Oh, might've might glitched a little bit, but Are I can there? hear you fine. Yeah, I'm here. Yeah, I can tell. Sometimes okay. I wish I could just like touch someone and, and and transfer that. Like what I'm feeling, like I want you to have that. Yeah. And it's the, the impossible right now. And so the book is the closest thing I can think of to, to that, to like try to give that feeling. Yeah, that's a great way to explain the act of creation and, maybe even intention in there. Like when you, in some ways, what I like about your book and what, what, why I can see the transference is that the book you wrote has plenty of sections for people to do their own homework, for them to come up with, you provide a framework for people to experiment with their own consciousness, kind of give them a roadmap to do that, you know? And I, I think there is something brilliant and beautiful about being able to show people the way and if you think about that terminology like it's pretty beautiful to show someone the way whether they're a lost traveler or they're a lost soul you know if you can point them in the right direction i think that you're doing the right thing sorry we cut out again well that's all right i was just saying that 
I think that being yeah. able to show someone the directions in life or being able to share with someone experiences is just another reason of why we're here being the, you know, having right. God. And I, I don't have, and I don't have the way, right. I'm, I'm not no claiming does, no to have the way right. at all. Right. right. <laughs> I don't think anyone does exactly. So maybe a road sign. Just, all you can do is yeah. Road sign. It's just like, here's, here's a, what do you call the cairn, this pile of stones of a, a traveler that's been here before. And then yeah. you can maybe read the stones and maybe you take something and you discard something else. Or you use them in a whole nother way. You know what I mean? Maybe it's, maybe it's a gift used in a whole nother way yeah. that you never even thought about. Yeah. One well, sec. I'm going to switch to the other Wi-Fi just to make sure it's not me. Yeah. Okay. Nice. The other Wi-Fi definitely works. <laughs> oh, nice. Yeah. Okay, nice. Nice. We're back. Yeah, so. But yes, uh, signposts. Yeah, that's. I think that's really all we can hope to do for those of us that decided to go into the dark forest, which is a choice. You can stay right. on the path if you want. And um, right. that is a little bit of what I, uh, I, I talk about in the book where I was on that sort of easy, well-grooved path and part of me wishes that I was just fine with that because, you know, that's, it's easy. You know, it, it, it's, yeah. it's set out for you. You just have to kind of walk through the motions and I could have just made more and more money. It's security and so on. But uh, some of us choose to go off course and go into the dark forest. And then we have people like yourself or whoever we meet on the road. And all they do is they say, you know, George was here and this is what George yeah. did. And then you can see, oh, yeah. well, how much does it apply to me? Hopefully you find a new path in the forest. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I, I, think, well, I think you told me a quote one time, or I know I've read it somewhere, and probably a lot of people have heard it, that says, when you're ready to learn, someone shows up to help you. And I look back at that in my life, and throughout my life, I've had a couple mentors that, one guy was my neighbor, I didn't even know him, this guy, Rick, from uh, New Jersey. Just, I moved in and there was this old guy and I can't tell you how much this guy changed my life just by throwing some darts and talking some stories about life and how to live life. And it's amazing how along the way people just show up in your life to kind of help you. Yeah. could be a stranger. I mean, I, there was a, a woman in Japan I didn't know for very long, had a huge impact on me. I only knew her for a few weeks, but yeah. Yeah. It's amazing to think about. I um, I got um. I was thinking today too about altered states of consciousness. Since we were talking about like the mushroom experience, LSD, and these different things, how much do you think, like today's world of education, stops us from experiencing alternate states of consciousness, or do you think that the world we live in today kind of frowns upon alternate states of consciousness? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you touched on this before, where, where we're talking about cults and maybe cult uh, that all those things, in some cases, are a psyop uh, because they want to keep you in the producer state of consciousness. 
where you go through the motions, you don't question anything, and uh, you don't really step out of that. Because, I mean, the thing that I got from pretty much every single psychedelic experience is that we don't need, like, I don't need someone to tell me what to do. <laughs> I, I hate I, that. Nobody knows anything. So, like, yeah. who are you to tell me what to do? You don't know anything. Right. I don't know anything. So the only authority is really inner authority. And people, unfortunately, because of fear of conditioning or whatever, they're we're programmed. We're, like, let's think about it this way. Everyone's alone in the wilderness, ultimately. Like, we're all in this rock in chaos in the dark forest afraid, don't know what the hell is going on, don't know what happens after we die, don't know what life means. So people are looking for someone to just swoop in and go, I know what's going on. I know what's up. Just follow me and everything's going to be fine. All right. That guy's full of shit or that girl's full of shit but because we need that or people need that. You know, I was just writing about this yesterday about how I was saying something and I like I intentionally use the words I think, or it seems to me, or in my opinion, because I acknowledge that of the one thing I know for sure is that I don't know I don't know much for sure. So <laughs> I always I always leave that open to okay I might be full of shit I might be completely wrong about everything right. but this is what it appears to me. However, my friend was telling me that. I was trying to like do, a, I don't know what I was trying to do, but I was trying to speak on well, with knowledge on something. And she's like, you shouldn't use those words because it makes you seem like you're not an authority. And I'm like, <laughs> but I'm not an authority. Yeah. Like there is no authority. It's an illusion that the fact that there even could be an authority, <laughs> but that reality doesn't resonate with what normal, most people need to hear from someone because they need to be reassured. They need to be, uh, told that they're going the right way or that they're following the right person. So I forget where we, what did we start talking about? I went on this tangent. I don't remember. No, where we, well, initially started. we were just talking about the way in which society conditions us to. Yeah. So yeah. So we're, we're conditioned. People, people have that as a basis, right? They have the basis of uh, I'm afraid. I don't know what's going on. So then they, you know, that that's an opportunity for people or negative energies to swoop in and sort of capture your consciousness and capture your energy and direct it toward a certain direction that benefits those people that captured it. So anything that's taking you out of that is going to be frowned upon. So a psychedelic is number one. I mean, everyone's done LSD and remembers the flower child days. All we need is community and love and self-determination. We don't need structures. We don't need people to, you know, tell us what to do. So yeah, that's probably one of the reasons why they, they vigorously attacked the psychedelic world in the seventies with the, the anti-war movement that happened in the U.S. And because before that, it was it was very deeply researched, heavily researched in psychological settings. And then it just turned off overnight because the people were getting uppity, right? So then yeah. they took all these substances and they made them schedule one uh, prohibited substances. And only now do we have this renaissance of people starting to look into it again, um, at least therapeutically. So yeah, I think there's huge interest in them they or whoever is ruling over us to to keep us down by not making us realize that we have all the authority. They actually don't have anything. And we're just relinquishing it constantly to to other people. And education systems also kind of do that. So the main task, I guess, for if you want to be a 
a spiritual adult. Um, we can talk about different different lines of maturity, right? We've got mm. the age maturity, we've got emotional maturity. We've also got spiritual maturity. So most people, uh, unfortunately, remain in a spiritually childlike state. You know, if you can imagine this spiritually frightened child lost in the forest, waiting for someone to show up and hold their hand and take them somewhere. But if you want to be a spiritual adult, then one of the first things we have to do is, is uneducate ourselves of our education, like unlearn so much. So it's almost like required that we do school for society. But once you hit a certain age, it's like, okay, now it's time to unlearn 90% of it. And that's going to take some time. I mean, you know, it took probably most of my 20s to really try to peel all that stuff back and just see what served me and what I could drop. And, uh, and psychedelics were a huge part of that. So if, 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 uh, yeah, if you want to keep people in line, then, then, you know, ban them and label what we're talking about as nonsense and crazy talk. And just to talk of a bunch of, you know, druggies, man, you know, it's, it's nothing. You guys aren't upstanding people of society. You're just a bunch of, you're doing the dope, whatever. It's as easy. <laughs> it's so easy to dismiss it. Um, and so it's, yeah, it's up to us to, to really own it, I think. Yeah, that's really well put. Like it, it, I've been reading this. I've been reading this book. It's called uh, "Altered States of Consciousness," and it's this series of lectures from like 1977. And it's so amazing to me. And, and it's beautiful, but it's also a little frightening. It's beautiful because they were beginning to answer the questions that we're beginning now, but it's also scary because it's the exact same questions, which means they were never answered. And some of the yeah. questions are like. You know, it's some of the questions are the language we have used from Freud on to define science to use like this. Let me, let me just can I just read you a little passage here of it? Yeah, please. OK. OK, in this in this section, it says lacking the artist freedom from the constraints of scientific method, behavioral scientists have focused much more on the products of specific directed thinking or on the study of isolated features of thought, such as the vividness of images, the effectiveness of imagery, impaired associate learning, and other forms of problem solution. By their very nature, the methods of the experimental psychologist have led perhaps to an overweighting of the structured, directed, rational aspects of thought. Studies of concept learning or of abstraction abilities of various forms of categorical thinking and of arithmetic or spatial problem solution have predominated because they are easy to conduct and control. And let me just read this other section right here. Indeed, it might be argued that Freud overplayed the logical and rational quality of mature waking thought and underestimated the adaptive and directed quality of wishful imagery laden thinking like if you just think about that for a minute the very foundations on which a lot of our scientific method was built was constrained from parts of thinking that are not controllable and i can understand wanting to get away from the abstract but in getting rid of the abstract you get away from potential solutions of problems and it does make mm -hmm. it controlled and all of a sudden as soon as it comes down to the the scientific method 
in the soft sciences, maybe now you have an authoritarian setup in a way like, no, this is it. You did that yep. wrong. And, and look where mm. we are right now with science. Like I read an article yesterday that talked about there's been a whole lot of potential problems showing that all the work in Alzheimer's has been falsified with the um, oh, amount I saw that. Of, isn't that mind blowing? Can you imagine? Like, I can't yep. imagine that. That's the problem. I saw a similar thing about the antidepressants that also came out in the last two weeks. That the science that that were based on antidepressant use, uh, brain chemistry is also totally, totally flawed. It's like the entire tobacco. We've used the entire tobacco industry scientists for everything. Or yeah, the- and it's you talk about the abstract, and it sort of ties into um, it all ties into like what you were saying about logical, rational thinking being emphasized and the way we yep. think of science uh, today and related to our last talk where we're saying about how unless you have a PhD in something, they basically yep. tell you to shut up. You don't know anything. Yep. Yep. So the end result is that basically society is saying that intuition is nonsense. Yep. They're, they're, they're just discarding it. Like there is no intuition anymore. It's like, what can we measure? What can we prove? Right. What can we put in a paper? And then common sense is gone too. Like you need to throw out intuition, you throw out common sense as well. So we're going down this one, I guess, the left brain path only, and we're totally ignoring the other one. Yeah, there's a great book by, um, oh gosh, Ian McGilchrist. He's got two books, actually. One is called The Master and His Emissary. And that particular book talks about the left hemisphere being the analytical part of your brain, being the emissary, and the right hemisphere being the master. And he says that the right hemisphere sees the big picture and uses the analytical scalpel of the left hemisphere to communicate using words and logic to, to, you know, the emissary is supposed to say what the master wants it to. But over the last few years, the overuse of emissary, the hyper, the hyper uh, exposure of analytical literature and the hyper exposure to the sharp scalpel that is the analytical mind has caused the emissary to kind of take over the king and be like yeah i'm just going to push you to the side like something out of like a shakespearean novel you know <laughs> it's yep. getting rid of the right side and if you look at a lot yeah, of that's people who, yeah right it's, no, it's go ahead I interrupt you okay. oh so you know just to think about if we look at that, if we look at the world of the analytical, if we look at the world of the scientific paper writing the future, if we look at the world of almost the technocratic takeover that's happening, the way we can look at the world through ones and zeros and it makes sense because there's enough sort of resources for everybody. If we just split it up a certain way, then it would be perfect. You know, If you look at that analytical reasoning, you start to see things like the, the mass inoculation of children in the name of science because it makes sense. You know, like it just it's just that the scientific takeover has gone way too. It's this analytical takeover that is not seeing the human the humanitarian side of it, even though it, it, it promises to talk about it. I don't know if I did a good job explaining that. You know, it, you did, but what they and what they say sorry, what we're talking about, the analytical takeover, they yeah. act as though they act as though they're flawless, that they are almost um, clinically precise as if it were an AI or something that was 
incapable of error, but they don't mention that everything is still motivated by very human incentives and the incentive to maybe falsify something for personal or financial gain. And uh, I keep, I have these discussions about the current vaccine campaign and people are like, well, when is this, when is it going to end? Like, when are they going to stop going with fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth boosters? And I think, I don't think it's going to end because not because of anything. Maybe there is something nefarious. I don't know. But if you just look at pharma as a company, they made record profits last year. And every company has it as its fiduciary responsibility to grow. So next quarter has got to be more than this quarter and forever. So even taking any conspiracy out of it, their job is to make more money. So they're going to find more ways to make more money. And that means pushing more boosters. That means pushing more drugs. That means taking monkey pox, which is fucking a nothing burger, and (laughs) turning it into a global pandemic of international concern so they can put out more medicine and vaccines for that. And it's just, it's now it's got a life of its own. It's its own monster. And um, yeah, we just act like this is science. This is, there's not, there's no motivation here other than the desire to do good, which is clearly isn't the case. There are too many human factors. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you don't need to have any sort of wild thinking to understand a business model. It's right there. It's, it's what everybody does. It could be just simply incompetence. It could be just business and then momentum. And that's it. Like a lot of it's just yeah. momentum. They've set up all these testing centers and technology to test and track people. And people are employed by that. And then if you're a company, you're trying to keep your employees, you're trying to grow. So they're going to just push to keep it going. Right. Yeah. yeah sometimes I, I was thinking recently about our modern medical system in once I read the article about the data on Alzheimer's being potentially wrong, it made me wonder, like, well, if that's wrong, what else is wrong? And then, it, oh, I mean, yeah. you know what I mean? Like, and then it obviously it brings you back to the idea, like, why are doctors just always practicing? Because they don't know what they're doing. So they're always just practicing. They're never really doing anything, you know? But so, but, but it I, makes me think. Sorry, sorry. Yeah. jump in on that <laughs> science bit a bit, if I can. Yeah, um, please. This is that another thing that I kind of am passionate about, uh, uneducating people about, um, people like you said, people have this idea that, uh, science is always right and it's infallible. And, you know, there's this peer review process to make sure that humans don't make mistakes. I am not an academic per se, but I was in the academic world for a time during my master's program. I used to help Taiwanese people edit and translate their academic papers for publication in English speaking journals. And I used to work with the Dean of the school on that. And so he would help me also correspond with journals. So we would do the, you know, do the draft, we would send it in, he would get, you know, they would make comments or whatever, send it back, we would edit it and send it back again to try to get it published. So there's a few things to kind of highlight what we're talking about here, the motivations and so forth. Teachers, professors are motivated in many universities by publications. So the number of publications they make and in which journals they make them is directly contributing to tenure, to promotion, and so forth. So they have a financial personal incentive to get published. Okay, that's point number one. Point number two, 
the peer review process that we claim is like this infallible check, usually it's only three people looking at it. So he would send it in. There's a paper editor, the journal editor would either say thumbs up or down right away. And if he said thumbs down, uh, sorry, so he said thumbs up, he would send it to like three other professors in that field to read, just three. And at no point in the process does anyone check the raw data. Never. Well, they only check if your methodology makes sense, if the structure of your reasoning makes sense, if your conclusions make sense from the data you've presented. No one is going no one has the ability to check if you didn't just make up numbers. The only way to check that is to reproduce the study. But there is no incentive to reproduce a study because if you're a scholar trying to make your name for yourself, why would you spend all your time trying to duplicate Mr. So-and-so's work instead of working on your own work? So That's it's very, very easy for entire disciplines to be created based on one very flawed study that seems good. And then other people, instead of trying to prove that study, they base their studies off the already approved study. So they take their conclusions that already exist and assume that they're they use that as like their foundation for their reasoning. And you can build entire fields like that. Um, so that yeah, like a lot of it is just nonsense. Like we don't even know, like, and I think there was somebody that tried to do that. I forget which field it was in, but some scholars tried to reproduce the studies of a particular field and they only got like 14% of them and the rest didn't, the rest failed. <laughs> Again, Man. it goes into goes into like what is a reality we don't even know because a lot of the science that we think is infallible it may not be it may be a house of cards yeah it it sounds like the look i mean just look around the world right now like look at what's happening like it makes more sense if the majority of the things we thought we knew were wrong like, just look around the yeah. world right now you know and, and that, that i mean if there's there are human incentives you can almost guarantee it's wrong right if yeah. there's a human incentive, you know the ego is getting involved, you know that things will probably get skewed and there will be bias. Almost guaranteed. Yeah. I saw an interesting interview um, a couple of years ago, and it was a bunch of scientists at the Milken Institute. And they were they were some – I forgot which schools they were from, but they were from some pretty big schools, and they were talking about the future of medicine. And they had talked about how with the – with so many baby boomers retiring, you know, 10,000 baby boomers retiring a day and the problems we have with healthcare and the problems we have with medicine and the problems we have with insurance companies and liabilities, the best way to go about medicine in the future is to just come up with these drugs and try them out because there's so much red tape, there's so many problems, there's so much money involved that by the time they get to a potential drug that could help, you know, it's already 20 years later and they have all these new things. So why not just, if you have something in the pipeline, just start testing it on people. And I, on some level, you know, the, I could see the guy that said it was very passionate about helping people. I could see that in his mind, he had probably lost patience to red tape. He had probably lost patience to drugs that ended up helping people. And I'm sure yeah. that the liability from that is, is crazy. But those are big questions. Can you just take a drug and test it on people. Can you take them and then, you know, maybe someone gives my dad a drug, and but I didn't want that, so there's liability involved there. But might that be, 
And then like, and granted, this was a few years ago. And then when I see the way in which things are being rolled out now, I have to wonder to myself, is this the way in which good people are trying to do new medicine? You know, and there are big questions. That, and it's too bad we can't have these type of, you know, instead of a Super Bowl, wouldn't it be amazing if we had like four doctors on both sides going head to head to debate about the way medicine should be? Or, you know, instead of bread and circus, perhaps we should have incredible debates like Buckley Chomsky did, you know, 25 years ago about foreign policy. Like there's, I, I don't see any reason why we can't be having these huge debates and huge public forums to make our world better. But instead, everything is kept hush hush and quiet and we move forward with blinders on. It makes me sad. Yeah. And I think the only way we're ever going to get this to change is we just have to change the incentives. So the example you you mentioned about the guy who went to fast track drugs, he might have been doing it from a good place, right. but it runs into the same problem as academic research in that right. there is more incentive to produce new exciting results financially and personally than there are to prove after the fact whether it works. So unless you had some perhaps publicly funded body of money, you know, that they devote billions of dollars to verifying research or to following up on new drugs for real, you know, if there's actually a side effect or whatever 10 years later, because there's no incentive to do that now, there's no money in that. So we're never going to know for sure what's going on with these vaccines because there's too little hard data and people aren't investigating it enough. But those incentives right now are flipped. Right? I don't know how, you're gonna, how we're going to do that, but if you could somehow figure that out, right, what would make the incentive to track the post, you know, the, ver the veracity of everything that were invented, then maybe it will change. I just, I don't think anyone's figured out or maybe put much energy into figuring it out. Yeah, I agree. I, it seems to me that, that I guess this is the kind of, kind of the, the, the plan for everything is if, if you don't stop, then you lose everything, you know, and it seems that we're on the cusp of like, there's so much good science out there. There's so many people behind science that have given their life to help people, but the way it's been bastardized lately and the studies because of the incentive process, like you explained, or the peer review, having whole industries built on houses of cards, it tarnishes the name and it makes it almost not worthwhile for people to even look at, you know? Yeah. I wish I, I wish we had that. I wish there was like some incentive for people to go and verify other research. At least make us more confident. Well, there, I mean, so there are people that like, I've learned that there's people that, like if I put out a video, there's a whole slew of people on YouTube that hey, you spelled that wrong, you big dummy. So there, <laughs> there is, there's people that will go and look for stuff just because they want to, you know, yeah. they see it and yeah. they're like, hey, dummy, look at that. So, I think that the um, the some sort of built-in incentive process is there. Maybe it is doing a um, you know what? What if we started like some sort of like GoFundMe for finding? How about like the you know how tech companies pay a bug bounty? Maybe we could start like a GoFundMe bug bounty for problems in in peer review research. You know, <laughs> I, I bet you I, I would pitch in for that, right? I would too, but if you're a researcher, like, would you rather be a writer or would you rather be a reviewer of other writers? So we got we have to like somehow convince people to take their ego out of it and then go that route.
you know maybe maybe like high school kids for extra money like maybe maybe yeah you know or yeah, we have to tie it to money somehow that's gonna motivate people <laughs> no, it's sad, but it's <laughs> wouldn't it be funny if we could get a group of like fifth graders to do it and like find holes and like these people with masters like their theories like hey you guys there's a fifth grade team <laughs> Yeah. Oh, you guys got uh, debunked by the Santa Rose, the third graders. Good job, guys. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Past fifth grade scrutiny. Embarrassing. Yeah, maybe there's not enough shame. We gotta figure it I, out. I, I don't know. Yeah, there was a there was a book written recently about how powerful public shaming is. And mm -hmm. you know, I, I'm not saying you gotta bring back yellow stars or a scarlet letter, but you know, something to be said about public shaming. I mean, there's, we've gone from public shaming to having no shame. You know, it's, in fact, yeah. it's a, yeah, I scam these people. So what, I, you know, it's almost like when you think of shame, on one level, you have the Nigerian print scam. And on the other side, you have like the Federal Reserve. They're kind of the same thing. You know what I mean? They're yeah. just stealing everybody's money. Yeah, it's built into the cake now. And there, uh, my girlfriend was telling me something crazy too. There's this, I didn't watch it, but there's a show on Netflix called The Tinder Predator or The Tinder Scammer. And he was some guy who would get on the, and uh, I don't know how I did it exactly, but he extorted all kinds of money from women and got them to pay for his lifestyle. And he got away with it because it was all in their name. Like he didn't actually sign on anything and they voluntarily would sign for loans for him and stuff like that. So that happened. And now he's got a TV show. They're like, we need to promote this guy. And it's just, holy shit. Um, I mean, all of Asian culture works on shame. Right. And there are obviously negatives to that because with, sh with shame, you have obedience. Mm. Um, I don't know if that has that, like, I mean, Switzerland does a pretty good job balancing those because Switzerland's pretty conformist, but they've also got an independent streak. So I think you got to find that balance of, cultural uh shaming so that people kind of like aren't assholes but yeah. still have control over their country yeah sorry i think we had this and asia oh. goes a little too far the other way like everyone's like very obedient culturally and they don't want to stand out but then of course they just they, you know they're they don't stand up they don't rise up yeah it's interesting i was at my my kid goes to uh in hawaii you know there's a lot more Asian influence than there is Western influence. And I was at a meeting in the morning with my kid and some other, well, not my kid, but at my kid's school with these other parents. And one of the counselors was talking about, you know, what is it that you parents want to see from, from us as teachers? Like what is the end result? What, what kind of things would you like us to instill in your kids? And the uh, Japanese lady next to me said, I want my child to be an obedient child. And I'm like, that's the last thing I want. I want my kid to be challenging authority. You know, so when she said that, I had to stop for a minute and like, like think about like, I want my child to be an obedient child. And like, on one level, I, I'm like, no, I don't want that. But on the other level, I'm like, maybe she has a different definition of what obedience is, you know? And so it, it made me stop for a minute and think about how difficult it is for the teachers at my kids school to like try to balance this this idea of all these different cultures being together and you know i mm. i would agree i ended up 
raising my hand and saying, you know, I, I, can I ask you what you mean by obedience? And she's like, well, I want him to be respectful to me and respectful to his parents. And I'm like, well, I can get behind that idea of obedience, you know? And then I told her, well, you know, I, I can, I understand that. And I like that as well. However, do you think it might be worthwhile to have your child challenge the barriers that are in front of him? And, you know, we were able to come to some sort of agreement. It was, it was clear that we didn't see things the same way, but both of us were able to have a conversation about what is possible and what the potential pitfalls could be for that. It's, it's interesting to think about that from a cultural point of view. Yeah. I used to teach English in Japan. Um, and it's interesting in that the, I saw that in the classroom that there's just no one ever wants to speak up or stand out. And even if you ask someone a direct question, they maybe just won't answer you. But if they're in a group, they'll, mm -hmm. they'll answer the question collectively. And um, what's interesting, another interesting aspect of that is that most of the people in Japan are quite conformist, but those that aren't tend to be extremely creative. Like mm. they just fought. I know some really, really like video games came from Japan. Think about all the stuff that they've invented. Yeah. And uh, I knew some really cool musicians that were just not really, you know, conforming to the system. And then he was amazing, this talented singer songwriter. And so I wonder if like, that would somehow create even more creativity by making people more conformist because the people that fall out of that system are more creative. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that conf those who conform almost give up their creativity. You know, it's, it's almost like you have to get rid of creativity to conform because yeah. you know, creativity is being different. Creativity is having the freedom to think and see the world in a different way. And if you become that which conforms, then you've just taken your blind. It seems to me, I don't mean that to be a pejorative, but it, it seems like it is to me. Maybe that's just the way I was built, or maybe that's because I have had a lot of instances where I hate authority and I've had to rebel against it. And I feel like it is crushing. You know, I don't know if that's an innate thing or something we learn along the way, or that's the Western culture or in our DNA. Maybe it's, Maybe it's something. I don't know. Yeah. Hold on. Cut out for a second. Yeah, kind of slipping. I guess I would be more comfortable with authority if I thought the authority had an authority. Yeah. You know what I mean? I, I know exactly what you mean. I, I despise authority because, like you said, they're full of shit. They don't know. No one knows better. I can read the same source material and I can read the same ideas about things that other people can, you know, and, and let me, can I share a quick story with you about authority? So when, after my first child had died, you know, it was a pretty traumatic experience. And my wife's second pregnancy, we went to the doctor and we were considered, we were deemed a high risk pregnancy. So we had to go through all these extra bells and whistles and, and when it came time, you know, a month before the pregnancy, my, my wife's doctor, you know, she says, okay, you know what, guys, we're going to go ahead and take the baby early. And I, I says, oh, why? And she goes, what do you mean, why? And I, I got kind of offended. I'm like, I mean, why are we taking the baby early? Why are you doing this? Isn't the last month the time in which 
the majority of brain cells are born and can't you look at the literature and see that children that are taken premature tend to be like 10 IQ points less than the babies, babies that aren't? And she's like, yeah, I can see that, George, but do you know what happened to your last child? I'm going to fucking strangle her. I'm like, yeah, I was there. I was there. And do you know what, like, why did my child die? And she just looked at me. She goes, well, we don't know why. I'm like, then why did you ask me that question? Like, what, why would you ask me that? Like, you don't know, but then you sit here and ask me and you want to take my child when you know it's going to potentially lead to having a worse life? Like, what's wrong with you? Why would you do that? That's what I'm asking you. And she's like, well, you know, George, you know, we, we just want to make sure that that doesn't happen again. I'm like, well, how are you going to do that? That's what I'm asking. I'm trying not to get mad and like lash out because I want to know what she has to say. Like, well, how do we know that's going to solve it? How do we know? She's like, well, we don't know. And I'm like, then why would we do it? Why? You know, and like that, that was the authority that like, I could see her standing over me and just looking down at me like, you big dummy, you don't know anything. I'm a doctor. And we got to take your kid early because your child died last time. And I'm like, that makes zero sense. That makes no sense yeah. at all. You want to do it. And then it hit me. Oh, you feel guilty as a doctor. So you want to make sure it doesn't happen. You don't give a shit about me or my wife. You don't want that yeah. on your conscience. And like, I, I, I had gotten like three other opinions and talked to other people and they're like, you know what, George, we don't know what happened. There's, there's the doctor just wants to do that because of her own reasons, you know? And, and there's no, I'm like, what are the chances of something like that happening again? And they're like, we can't tell you. We don't know. Zero, 80. We don't know. There's no reason it should, but like, it's been that struggle with authority. And, and for me, that was just like, that was it for me. Even, I mean, through high school and stuff, I hated authority. But for me, that was it. I'm like, you know what? Never again. Ne I don't care who, what doctor or what judge. I can read the same source material and come up with my own ideas. And I feel much better about the outcome, even if it's a negative outcome. At least it was my decision to do it. Instead of relying on some authority figure who, you know, is just, it kills me, man. It kills me to think about it. <laughs> At this point, I'm ready for uh, for AI to be the authority. <laughs> it's like it sucks. It's scary as shit. But at least I know they're not motivated by ego and you know other greed factors. Because like, okay, we need to have government, I guess. But I would be much more comfortable comfortable with government if I thought that they were uh, answering to some authority that was not motivated by greed or ego. Yeah. What? Well, how do you no, see we've never the AI had that. future? Yeah. Do you do you think that's like what about the programmers? Isn't AI only as good as the people that program it? Yeah. At the end of the day, there's still a human touch, I suppose. So we'll probably never have this infallible judge. We <laughs> so can't have it. Let's get rid of all. <laughs> just yeah. Just like do your own thing. I, I kind of feel sometimes like that's where we're at. Like. I saw a really good interview between uh, Brett Weins or one of the Weinstein brothers and Peter Thiel. And what they were saying in that interview was Peter Thiel said that, you know, if you look around your room, the only thing that's changed in the last 50 years is the screen in there. So if you took out your phone, your iPad, your tablet, your computer, your TV, that room would be essentially the same as it was 50 years ago. And further in that conversation, he said the problem with the future is technology never showed up. And this is coming from Peter Thiel. Because the problem yeah. is technology never showed up. We, we bet the farm, all the nation states, the politicians, the big companies, the 
the investment funds, the retirement funds, they bet the farm on automation and technology and all these big tech companies, but never showed up. And so now we're sitting around like, okay, guess that didn't pan out. You know, like there's, you know, when we were little, we saw the Jetsons, but we're supposed to live in the sky pad apartments and have flying cars. 20 years ago, we were supposed to have driving, self-driving trucks, you know, and, and like we always have the, the, the answer to all our problems is five years away. And then next yeah. year will be five more years away. It never shows up. And if you look at the world erupting into world, into a chaotic mess of populism or an outbreak of freedom, however you want to describe it, it's, it seems to me that the money's been changed, it's changed hands. It's gone to the people that said they could do it and they they haven't delivered. And I don't see them delivering. I don't see AI coming. I don't see automation coming. I don't see the, the robot flipping burgers at the burger joint. Like I don't see the technology anywhere. Maybe it is, but you know, maybe it's in bombs or swarming mosquito drones, but I don't see it. I don't see it in my neighborhood. Have you seen the robot attack dogs? I have seen those. They see the one with a rifle on its back shooting at targets. Where was that at? I don't know. I saw it last week. Boston I Dynamics. Did. A George Orwell quote, the future of humanity is a boot stepping on a human face. That's the kind of yeah. <laughs> I get when I see that. Yeah. Yeah, we have all these weapons of war. Okay. Let me just take you down this little side rabbit hole right here. Who do you think are the kids? Do you think the people, some of the lead scientists today may be the children of Operation Paperclip? Which one was that? I don't remember. So Operation Paperclip was when we brought over like all the Nazi doctors. Oh, like, yeah, the, the SS. Uh, uh, Werner von Braun, you know, they pretty much run NASA and stuff. Like whatever, what, I, I don't know. It just makes me wonder, like, if those were the scientists that came over and developed everything, no wonder we have Boston Dynamics. No wonder we have all these crazy robots and automated space weapons and stuff like that. It's crazy. Yeah. I don't know. I think total control is a goal. So, I mean, right now we're in that that moment. Like, how much fight do we have in us? Or are we just going to let it happen? Maybe there's no fighting it. Maybe total control and total transparency is the future. My concern is that it's transparency for the many, but not the few. Yeah. I, um, I was talking to this guy, Benjamin George, yesterday, and he told me that what he sees coming down the pipe is like the end of the nation state. And if you look at the way in which corporations already rule the world, you know, they have the interlocking board of directors. They pretty much have a pretty firm grip on at least trade in a lot of areas. And they're able mm -hmm. to sidestep the government regulations by moving their accounting to Ireland and they're being protected by the United States and, you know, really finding a way to finesse the laws of every country. And he says that the nation state is slowly becoming irrelevant. And what you're seeing is pretty soon you'll be able to buy a, you'll get the company dollar that's good at the company store, be it an Apple dollar or a Google dollar. And, you know, there's, there's little Google cities here and Apple cities there. It's, it's kind of an interesting thought. Yeah. I mean, the foundation is for sure being laid as we speak and we see it in a few different areas already. So one is that what you mentioned or what Benjamin George mentioned. And there is, for example, if you're following the WHO treaty vote of a few weeks ago, there was, uh, you have, right? Um, I, fill me in. I, I'm not familiar with a lot of those. No. I think it was a month or two ago, the, um, 
the WHO wanted to uh, revise its treaty with all of the member nations in which the WHO would, uh, their decrees would overrule the sovereignty of each nation in terms of any health crisis or outbreak. Hmm. And there was, so anytime they say pandemic, well, then the WHO can just do what they want to the people and the, the country has no say anymore. And there was a huge kind of upswell of of um, rebellion against this and it ended up failing and there was a lot of people that signed on from each countries to say no stop here so but they've tried it already and they're going to keep trying it right and so who may be one arm of this new one world government that they're um trying to make another arm of it is gonna is already happening in the realm of tax so uh, i think right now it's limited to the eu but um, they're proposing a global or EU level minimum tax. And the reason I'm aware of this is because I'm a national of Switzerland and I'm keyed into the tax industry there. And Switzerland has been known for having preferable tax rates for people and businesses to attract business. And, you know, it's good for, it's good for business. And so there's a huge discussion in Switzerland now because they're apparently decided to comply with this minimum tax rate. So they're trying to figure out how to balance that with the needs of the country. And I think they've agreed to do it. And then I think now it means there's a 15% minimum tax in this zone, which maybe it's just Europe or will probably expand. And we know what happens with taxes over time. They almost never go down, right? The 15% minimum is going to be 18 and then 20 and then 25 eventually. Um, so that's one other area. And what was the third one? Oh, uh, central bank digital currencies are coming. Mm. And th I, this isn't my information, but I'm keyed into uh, some people in the crypto space that are very well networked to governments at all levels and banks and so forth. And what he's telling me all the time, he's like, the crypto space is going to be destroyed eventually, except for a few regulated country-backed digital currencies. Um, CBDCs, they call them. Um, they're already they're already working on them. Uh, a lot of the exchanges are going to be banned, in his opinion, from trading anything but these currencies. Crypto will exist outside of these currencies, but it'll be black market. You won't be allowed to use them to buy anything. And the, once they get rid of cash, you will only be allowed to use these to purchase things. And they will have a complete transparent overview of everything that you buy. And it will be... I mean, you've seen these movies that kind of predict this. Like, if you see movies from the future where they're walking around, I don't know if it's, uh, what was it, Will Smith movie, like iRobot, or I, I think it's one of them, got like a chip in his hand and it shows his credits. And every time he buys a beer, he just scans his hand or something. They're, they are working on that. They are, there's already technology that they can implant in your hand that has your credit balance. So it will be complete control of what you do, what you spend. The World Economic Forum just happened a few weeks ago, and I forget who was speaking, but he's like, yeah, we're going to have a system where people can control or they can see how much their carbon footprint is. So all this is going to be implemented under the guise of the, the world of climate change, of carbon footprint, and every good is going to be associated with the carbon footprint. And if you spend too much, they're going to just shut you off. They're going to be like, nope, you exceeded your credits. No more carbon footprint for you. For this month they will have that ability if this happens 
Man, so they don't total- necessarily need to create like a government. They can do it piecemeal through all of these different mechanisms. And that to me is the most terrifying thing because the more, I, this is what was my focus in economics was uh, the area of institutional economics and the idea of voting with your feet. And the less ability you have to vote with your feet, the less freedom you have. So the more, like the, the more effort it takes to exit a jurisdiction, the less freedom you have, right? So in the, in the U.S. initially, states had more power. By and large, the federal power has taken over the states. So if you want to go to a jurisdiction where they have vastly different laws or taxes, you've got to leave the U.S. But what happens when that government is the world? There's no place for you to go. Yeah, there's nowhere to run. Nope. Can't vote with your feet anymore. You're stuck there. Yeah. And then so what I think is going to happen is we're, we will probably have something like that, but we'll just have all of these like, and I guess the counter argument to saying this is good for people because in the old times we had tribes, we had nation states, we had these bands of community, whatever, that were constantly at war with each other. So to create a bigger government means more peace in the end. And it probably will because there won't be direct conflict between sovereign nations, but you're going to have more and more of these like regional disputes. You're going to have more civil wars of like these little uprisings that's going to be quashed by whatever the the global army is. And that's kind of my dystopian view of the world right now, unless things change. Yeah, it makes sense. I can see it. It's like a minority report. You know, if, if, if yeah. you can have smaller and smaller groups, they're easier and easier to squash and, you know, look at yeah and then you see the censorship right they're already yeah. they're already censoring the dissent and um they're you know kind of like probably flagging people that i've been banned from linkedin a couple times because some things i said and then brought back and uh you know there's something the other scary thing i saw is that uh, i think it was some senator of of the u.s warning about the ability to create dna customized bioweapons in the future. Wow. So they're going to be able to create a virus that's just for George Monty. And they've, and the, another thing I saw is with these COVID swabs that when people have to take the PCR tests, it's estimated that 10% of all the swabs taken were sold to other co- DNA uh, um, companies to, to like collect. So you can imagine as a future where like, not only are you, you can't say certain things, but if you're, too uppity, they can destroy your social credit. They can stop you from spending. And in the worst case, they've got your DNA in file. They can just have someone sneeze on you and kill you off. Yeah. Like that's crazy to think about. Yeah, I mean, like, what's twenty three and me? Like they've been doing it for years. You know, that's yeah, I did. Like, I didn't know what I was doing. Yeah, I was like, oh, I this know, is cool. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I guess on some levels, personalized medicine may hold the the power for longevity but i mean is it is it promising or is it suffering you know do you really want to be yeah. <laughs> it's crazy to think about man well kevin i'm having an absolute blast man um i gotta get down and hang out the fam a little bit i'm sure you got some things you gotta handle but this is so, awesome man i'm really yeah. thankful to get to spend time with you and talk to you and um you know, we can make it a, hopefully we can make it a weekly thing where we can find a day to carve out and just, you know, continue to solve the yeah. most problems for everybody. Thanks again for having me. And it's already the last one we did already resulted in a couple book sales. So people reach out and they said, Hey, I saw your interview and I want to get your book. I'm super excited and I'm super thankful to have had you here to help 
build this and make this better because I really enjoy talking to you and I think the audience enjoys talking to you as well. So thank you for that. And thanks for letting me share that. Yeah. Okay, man. Yep. All right. Enjoy your time. We'll talk to you soon, man. Okay. All right, man. All right. Aloha. Aloha, everyone. Thanks for taking a moment to hang out with me in the True Life Podcast. I truly appreciate it. If you're taking some time to listen to this, whether it's your first podcast with me or you've been with me the whole way, I truly want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart. Additionally, I would like to try to inspire everyone. The world is a crazy place. And if you listen to your heart and you take some chances, I really think the world will unfold in front of you in ways you can't imagine. I've been doing the podcast for about five years. Last year, I decided to take the plunge. Well, circumstances dictated that I took the plunge. And I did. I've begun working on the podcast full-time for almost a year now. And it's been so rewarding to me that... I would just want to try and inspire other people. If you have a dream, if you have a vision, follow the voice in your heart. Listen to the song on the wind and embrace the challenge. I think you're strong enough, you're smart enough, and you're good enough to make your dreams come true. But you have to believe in them. And I truly believe wholeheartedly that if you take a chance, a real chance on what is possible, then your dreams will unfold in front of you. Uncertainty can be a monster. It can be something that we run away from. But much like fear, if you stand in front of it, it's not that big of a problem. I know everyone listening to this has a dream and a vision, and I hope you all conquer it. And I want you to know it's possible. Take baby steps and move towards it, and you will get closer to it. Your relationships will be better. Your life will be better. And you know what? You deserve it. You're an amazing person. If you get a moment, Go down to the show notes. If you can, support the show. Thank you so much for being here. Now let's get to it.